Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 141. I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. We are going to talk about the Kickstarter, which we took out back and put a gun to its head. Like Dead. old Yeller? Yes. And uh, it was it was very sad and very painful, but we're not going to dwell on it. We're going to look at the future, and we're going to focus on positivity. Uh, we're going to uh, talk about a really cool article. Uh, once in a while, man, Gama Sutra really comes through and is like, you know that guide you've been wanting for these impossible things you're trying to do? Here you go. <laughs> Uh, the bad news is that once that information is available, like that's that's the beginning of the closing of that door, you know. Yeah, people know about it now, and it's uh, you know the process itself loses some of its punch. But uh, let's talk about that because there's some really great stuff in there, and it's it's like it's so good. It's the kind of stuff that you read, and you're like, oh, it's so obvious now. <laughs> it's that kind of good. Yeah. So you're talking about uh, an article called "The Making of an Indie Hit." What makes an indie hit? Oh, what makes an indie hit? How right. to choose the right design. And uh, some of these things that we, we've been kind of doing for a while, but we didn't really have the right language for it, and we didn't even necessarily... I think this is a really common thing. People don't even know what certain parts of their process are. You know, they couldn't tell you. A lot of the times it comes from the gut, or they've just been doing it for so long that it feels like second nature to them, and so they, they skip that step when describing it, you know? Right. And you see that a lot with artists. Well, they'll be like... um you ever seen this meme kind of thing that goes around where it's like, here's a drawing tutorial, uh, how to draw an owl. Start with some circles and then draw the rest of the owl. And like, it's two <laughs> panels. The, the left panel is like some scrappy circles, you know, and the right panel is like this really great looking drawing of an owl. And it's like, there's this big gap in the middle, you know? <laughs> and a lot of art, for a lot of artists, it's, they're like, I don't know, I'll just draw it. Just, just put strokes down. Like, what do you, what do you want from me? <laughs> I don't know what I do. <laughs> I've seen another Just one that's, that's similar where it's like, you know, how to draw a rabbit. And it's like, start <laughs> with two circles. And then it's like, draw until your fingers fall off for 20 years. <laughs> and then <laughs> yes. now you can draw a rabbit. That's pretty much it. And it's, it's depressing. And uh, I think that that's true for a lot of creative disciplines, especially something as vast and like all encompassing as, as making a game. You know, there's so many disciplines that you have to execute well on and uh, man it's rough so this article was written by um ryan clark who is of crypt of the necrodancer fame and this is a developer who's been at it for a long time you know and necrodancer is the first like obvious hit i would say like major hit right yeah um so but he's been making games for like at least 10 years or so yeah um and with you know varying levels of success yeah, this stuff takes a while, man. It's like, don't expect it to take a year or three years or five or <laughs> maybe it's going to be 10. <laughs> Seriously, it's uh, it's really exhausting. Yeah, it's a long time. So let's kind of go through the uh, the article on the high level. Uh, we really recommend going and checking out. Obviously, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, which uh, I will make a note right now. And uh, so let's kind of go through it. First, there's an introduction where it kind of sets it up the way we just did a little bit. And then... Um, the first thing is like, uh, good isn't good enough. And that links to this other article, but it's basically like, you know, today, if you launch a good game on the market, that's not necessarily going to do anything for you. It needs to be stellar. You know, it needs to be notable. It needs to have hooks is uh, the analogy that he uses. And we'd talked about this before in the context of a strange attractor. Right. I'll put and a link to that. I think it's... Uh interesting to note that what 
I think is really happening here is just the bar is just getting a lot higher. Yeah. And so because it's a lot easier to make games, having something that is just kind of cohesive and attractive art and, you know, some amount of hours of time you can waste playing it is not enough. Right. You know, it has to, like you said, be something that it's almost like viral, right? Like it has to be something that people want to talk about. And, you know, he uses his game Crypt of the Necrodancer as, uh, you know, as an example. And like, obviously that game has some great hooks. Yeah. Um, one being that the name is kind of memorable and punny. Yeah. Right? So it's, you know, Crypt of the Necromancer would be a standard. Like, and honestly, if I saw that name, I would, I would be like, I'd be reminded of Crypt Run. And my lesson would be, I, I'm never going to remember that. Don't call it that. That sounds generic. It could be any game. It doesn't tell me anything about the game, you know? But with that very subtle twist, it becomes a pun, which, like, I'm a big fan of puns, as you can tell from Lost Cast titles, right? And uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun is also a big fan of puns. And uh, the quote that they said was, Crypt of the Necrodancer is called Crypt of the Necrodancer, which already makes it incontrovertibly the greatest game of all time. Bold words, <laughs> and that's just for a title, you know? <laughs> right. So already they're off to a great start. And um, I think something else the article mentions is that, like, we've talked about um, a strange attractor, and we kind of, we set that up as one thing, you know? Like, what's your strange attractor? And this article talks about multiple hooks. And I think that's important, because the more hooks you have, the more, I mean, it's, it's a great analogy, the more fish you're going to catch, right? The more interest you're going to gather, I think that we're we've been kind of coming around to that. I think that you and I have been discussing. Uh, we kind of segmented into like a thematic hook and a mechanical hook, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just those two. But you know, we were thinking like you know, in a wizard's lizard, for example, uh, there's kind of this thematic hook that is you're a lizard, and the title has also kind of got that like kind of funny, rhymy thing going on. Yeah. Um. And then, but in Crypto the Necrodancer, they have this great gameplay hook, this mechanical hook, which is that uh, it's basically a rhythm game mashed up with a roguelike. There was this conversation we had um, maybe a couple weeks ago where um, we were looking for things to make a Wizard's Lizard 2 stick out more, and uh, I kept focusing on bees, and maybe we talked about this already, but your point was that the bees are really just like a visual uh, hook, right? Like, okay, bees are pretty cool and some people are going to like that, but it's not a mechanical hook, you know? And that's not necessarily deep enough uh, because you could replace the bees with fireballs and all of a sudden it works the same. It's just a weapon, you know? Right. And that's what this uh, article makes a point about Necrodancer is the core game mechanic is a hook. And that really matters. Like, you can't remove that feature and, like, you can still play the game. No, it's, like, deeply embedded into all of the game and that's advantageous. Um, it's also, I think, a pretty big win, as he notes, for demoing because he gets to demo like he has this DDR mat. Yeah. <laughs> that he can have players uh, come up and play their game. And so, like, immediately that's interesting because it's something that no one else is doing, right? You're looking yeah. at this ocean of indie games and you come across this booth where people are dancing. Yeah, man. And uh, it's gonna, you're going to pay attention. You might want to try it. You're going to uh, draw a least, crowd. Yeah, you'll at least remember it. Yeah, for sure. And, like, you need more space, which is something, you know? Like, uh, we were... Who was I talking to recently? There's basically, like, you know, the indie mega booth type things. You end up having these really tiny, like, three-by-three little tables with, like, a single laptop on it or something. Because in order to get into something like PAX, a lot of the uh, indies, they've got to share space, you know? And with a dance mat, you've got to make room for that. And you've got to take up more space. And that's going to attract people just on every single 
level you know it's it's taking up more space it's people want to dance people moving around like you know fun music playing uh it's gonna draw a crowd like almost guaranteed yeah and i think the thing that's tough about that is that you know no one else can really come along and make a roguelike dance rhythm game again at least like you know in the foreseeable future right and have the same level of success so you can't really look at it as really a roadmap but more like um just kind of an abstract guide for trying to find something that's unique right uh that people can latch on to yeah I, i've tried before going back and like looking at any game that kind of you know struck a certain chord or got a certain amount of coverage or whatnot and trying to like examine what the hooks are and what the poles are and uh it's really difficult sometimes you know like there were even some articles again on gamma sutra that were talking about this and one of them was like um black annex which is interesting to me and, and probably you because it was made in QBasic, right? Mm. But, but like you can take that aside, you can take that apart. And what I realize is that that's very flimsy because I, although I personally think that's really cool and interesting, gamers aren't going to care. You could tell it was made in Game Maker. I, I made it with toothpicks. They don't care. Like they just want to play it, right? <laughs> yeah. And the other part is I couldn't tell you one thing about the game because I never actually did go and play it. I can't tell you what it's about. I don't know what genre it is. I don't know what the title means. I don't know anything about it. But I did remember it because I was like, hey, QBasic, that's how I cut my teeth on programming, you know? It's kind of like uh, our experiences with HTML5. Like, HTML5, at some points in our careers, seemed like it was an attractor. You know? Yeah. And it's, had, it is at some, on some levels. Right? On some levels, mostly from, like, companies yeah. that are interested in the platform. But hardly ever from gamers. Yeah, the, hardly The ever. best thing you could say about HTML5 would be that, you know, you could play it on the web without plugins. And that might be something that attracts gamers but yeah it's you know <laughs> kind of hit or miss in that sense yeah we never did you know take advantage of that and put it on the web which you know would make a lot of sense to be an obvious reason to pick that technology but uh you know it, it definitely was a hook for a long time like we talked about this if you go back and you look at onslaught arena if that was made in flash nobody would have cared right but right. and i think that honestly that kind of put us on a weird career path because we kind of thought like oh people are going to care about every little tiny crappy game we make right <laughs> it's like no you kind of did that at just the right time before anybody was really doing that and people were not like wow look you know kind of bad pixel art like minotaurs and skeletons that's amazing <laughs> like that was not it even though we kind of wanted to convince ourselves that maybe it was we're like man we made a pretty cool game it was honestly like, it was the tech right hey you can make an action game in canvas now and people are like, oh, cool, you can? I'll, I'll try that. I'll play that. And, you know, it got kind of longer legs than it deserved because of the timing and the tech, basically, right? right? Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and, like, there is some tech overlap with the um, the core mechanic, at least when it comes to the dance pad, you know? Like, um, you could look at that as, like, a technological thing, but uh, a lot of people like it. You know, like, I, I like dance pads. They're fun. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting because I have a lot of respect for that game in terms of the hooks, and it's memorable to me, and... Uh, I'm interested in it, but I don't, I'm not very good at rhythm games, so I'll probably never actually play it. Right. Because I have no rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) No rhythm. Yeah. Awful. Like you should see me trying to play Guitar Hero or something. It's like. Disgraceful. (laughs) It's like watching a baby giraffe try and walk for the first time. (laughs) Oh, now I want to go look on YouTube for baby giraffe. (laughs) That's adorable. You know what I was thinking though? I had a brilliant idea just now. Did you? Yes. You're going to give Ro- it away? I am. I'm going to give it away for free. <laughs> All right. Take some notes. <laughs> Roguelike Duck Hunt. Oh. With the peripheral gun. Oh, wow. 
That's yeah. that's gold. That's <laughs> gold. <laughs> uh, let's see. What would you call that? Hunt of the rogue duck. <laughs> <laughs> that's seriously not a bad idea. Like it has at least uh, some elements of uh, Necrodancer, right? Right. It's a, it's a pretty shameless ripoff. It's like, hey, take a peripheral that no one is using and turn it into a roguelike game. Done. Yeah. Money raining from the sky. Pretty much. You could do the same thing with the guitars or drums. Drum oh, of yeah. the drummer dancer. <laughs> I like the gun one, though, a lot. That was uh, I always thought that was a lot of fun when I was growing up. Yeah, that one was great. And there was that stupid dog, and you always wanted to shoot him. Ruff, ruff. Man, I remember uh, there were, I'm not going to remember the name because it was like 20, 30 years ago, but uh, basically there were these other, not really games, but they sold themselves that way, but basically you would buy this ship, which had like a trigger on it, and you would, you know, pull the trigger and be like, pew, 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 and but basically the way it worked is you'd put a VHS tape into your VH, uh, v- <laughs> VCR back in the day, <laughs> and these ships would like, would, you know, fly across the screen, and you'd shoot at them, and they'd blow up. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. I'm four years old, so I don't know that this doesn't actually work. And then later, uh, you experiment and you put the tape in the VCR and you hit play and the ships just fly and explode. There is no actual interaction. <laughs> but it was it was really interesting because the first couple times I played it, uh, I was totally spellbound. You know, like it worked. Very convincing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. there's like a certain threshold where you know, you're young enough to not really understand. You just kind of like, I'm clicking this button and things are happening, so I must be doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm on board. Let's do this thing. <laughs> um, uh, this article also mentions the uh, really hooky soundtrack by a well-known composer who would be uh, Danny Baranowski, who is uh, of Binding of Isaac fame, for one, and then also Super Meat Boy. Super so, Meat Boy, yeah. And probably I, other things. Yeah, I want to say at this point that, like, there's something the article doesn't uh, mention, which is a factor that matters, which is, I would call it, I guess, prestige, or, you know, pre-installed audience might be a factor. You know, like, because, okay, let's say Danny B is on his Twitter with his probably like 25,000 followers, and, you know, let's say he's working on the soundtrack for six months, and he's constantly tweeting about it, and, like, you know, sending it out to his fans and stuff, like... That's going to be an advantage because personally, I really, really like Joshua Morrison music. I think that's obvious, right? But fact of the matter is, he just doesn't have the massive audience as some other composers, right? He actually so, does mention that. He says, uh, you know, the game has an excellent soundtrack by a well known composer. Star Power is a hook. Yes. Star Power is definitely a hook. But it's just like that. That's all he says. You know, like there's these five words in the middle of this giant article. And like um, later, what I was doing is I was kind of like, cobbling together various pieces from this and then also from a different article we talked about which was uh, evaluating game mechanics for depth and i was putting together a guide that we could use to kind of measure what we think the possible success would be of a game design that we have going and i think that prestige is, is a major thing you know because like we don't really have it we have a very small audience that we've built up over time with the podcast and our games and whatnot but like we don't have tens of thousands of of followers and like if let's say I don't know, we, somebody with an audience was to jump on board or something, that would be notable, you know, if I got the right. star power on board. Don't know how to do that. Uh, it's networking. I mean, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of businesses, creative or otherwise, uh, a lot of them rely on networks, the network yeah. effect. So, you know, it's a good reason they get out there and uh, make friends with people because you never know, you know, who you might end up working with or how someone will help you. 
Um, I like to think about just my own personal career, and uh, I think every job that I've ever had um, was a reference from someone I knew. That's how you got hired at uh, Raptor, where you and I became buddies. Yep. And uh, at Yahoo before that, I got hired by a mutual friend of ours. And oh, yeah. before that, it was someone else from a different company that I'd worked with before. And before like my very first programming job, it was just uh, someone that I, I knew, a friend that also was a programmer. And he worked at this place, and he got me that job. And Yeah. Every single place, it's always been about who I knew. That's rather kind of... Than, uh, you know, like my actual credentials <laughs> hey your credentials were good too though i think you you had a two-pronged approach right that's true but i mean like the network thing was what got my foot in the door you know it's and then, really what made the difference right like you could have yeah. actually been a crappier developer and you could have been less competent and you could have had worse hygiene and like you could, <laughs> you could have executed worse across the board in every other scenario but like you know you knew you knew andrew at raptor and there you go that was your end right <laughs> yeah that's really hard too as indies because like you know we don't have uh you know an office where we go in and there's oh there's a dozen other you know people to network with and they've got their own networks that you can be introduced to and that kind of a thing like we don't have any co-working space um i've noticed that like when we went to uh e3 earlier this year andrea my wife was she kept bumping into people she knows it was like you know a handful of people and i'm like no one, <laughs> not, <laughs> not a soul. And it's not that um, we, I, I don't know people. Like it's, it's a different scenario actually at GDC or almost anything in um, San Francisco. You know, like we might bump into Play Canvas or Lude or, um, you know, it was like artillery, game culture. There's like a bunch of different companies we've worked with and we know and we, you know, have a lot of friends and stuff up there. But it's like, I, I think it just goes to show that especially down here in Southern California, like Andrea is more kind of entrenched, uh, at least in the networking side of the industry. And that's something we have kind of lacking recently, you know, like we haven't made any new strong connections in a long time and that might be a, a weakness of ours. It could be. And it's like when we were first doing the HTML5 stuff, we actually had a lot of stuff going on, you know, because yeah. we were in this kind of young industry and there was a lot of people interested in it and we were we were basically a big fish in a small pond. I mean, or a medium-sized fish in a, in a drop of water yeah, in a puddle. Okay. <laughs> if you're talking about HTML5 gaming? Yes. Yeah, I'll take that. Especially yeah. near the beginning where it was like, there are three people making HTML5 games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, back, you know, when we actually had yeah. the network going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, one of those things about like, you know, moving Unity and things like that is that we're more, you know, we're, we're putting ourselves more into these larger aquariums where... Uh, you know, there's not as much room to be unique, I guess. I mean, yeah. at least, at least in, like just intrinsically. Yeah. Well, like we wanted to s- swim in the steam ocean, right? And when you're swimming yes. in the steam ocean, it's like you're competing with EA games and Capcom games and the biggest indies in the world, like Double Fine, and you know, like <laughs> you, you disappear. You know, it's like if I'm going to buy one game on Steam, what's the chance that it's going to be yours? Uh, not great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that the the bigger thing, I think, for indies isn't really even EA or those kinds of games. It's more like Clay and uh, those kinds of companies where they're like the triple I, you know, I think. Mark of the Ninja was, and Don't Starve and uh, the indies that are barely indie anymore. So you're talking about yeah, the non-scrappy exactly. indies. But they're kind of billed as indie on Steam. You know, they show yeah. up in the indie categories. And, like, technically they are an independent company. 
but the games they put out are just the bar is so high. Like they're yeah. just, they're really well designed and they've got great art and they've got great music and they're just yeah great I mean, marketing. Indie is is just such a tough word because like technically Valve is independent. I mean, <laughs> like that right. does not really match up, but that is true. They are privately owned, so <laughs> but they're Kingsmakers at the same time. So yeah, but I think the point is is that like there's this kind of like I think vanishingly small <laughs> place where you can be like someone who makes low budget games, right? Uh. It's a getting harder and harder because the quality bar is just going up and up and up. And when people think about indie games, this is actually kind of a conversation I was having with uh, Ryan Davis on Twitter, sort of uh, talking about how this, that quality bar, like it just keeps going, going up and up. And, you know, our games made by one or two people are just sitting on a shelf next to games by, you know, a hundred, you know, a, a company of like maybe 30 to 50 people. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. tough, man. Yeah. <laughs> I think is the, the takeaway there. I saw a cartoon, somebody tweeted that I liked, uh, which kind of helps a little bit. It was like, so, so first panel is, um, there's a cake on a table and the cake looks really elaborate and, and pretty. And then this artist walks up and puts their piece of crap cake on the table. And they were like, oh man, that cake is a lot better than mine. And then they walk away. And then in the next panel, there's a, uh, a fan with forks in his hand and he's all like happy and he's like sweet two cakes <laughs> so there is an element there because this is not a zero-sum market you know like there right. there are scenarios once in a while where you'll have like a gamer who's like okay i got 15 bucks and i want to buy a roguelike which roguelike am i going to buy right and the, the chances are they're not going to buy a wizard's lizard because when you look at the roguelike category we're competing with binding of isaac and rogue legacy and crypto necrodancer and spelunky we're probably not going to be the first pick or the fifth pick you know like we're probably more uh, like our audience is people who are fans of roguelikes and buy all the roguelikes and they love roguelikes, roguelikes, roguelikes. Right. But that's like a, a small percentage. <clears throat> Very of small. Users. I think there was something that came out recently about, you know, basically, I don't remember the actual percentages, but the gist of it was that, you know, a large percentage or small percentage of steam users own a large percentage of the games. Yes. Uh, so like, for example, you know, these are just made up off the top of my head, but like 10% of Steam users own 80% of the games or something. Yeah, something like that. Which means that basically what you have is you have a very small audience or a very small slice of Steam's massive audience yeah. that buys a lot of games. And then you have the vast majority that just buy a few games. And it's not exactly a zero-sum game, but I think that we were I was reading, and I don't know if we were talking about it or not, but there's kind of people that are like you know i just play dota or i just play league of legends or i just yeah. play whatever like they're kind of uh almost just these like singular <laughs> focus kind of people and it's not even that like oh i'm a moba person so i play all mobas right right it's like i just play league of legends yeah i was talking to my buddy brett a while ago and i was talking about world of warcraft because i was playing at the time and uh he was like I haven't played that because he's a very polyamorous gamer. He likes to play as many games as he possibly can because he likes to keep his finger on the pulse. And he's like, I realize it's the kind of game, like you're pretty much either playing that or you're not. And when you are, it severely limits the other games that you're playing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can be a tempting thing. You know, you look at like, oh man, Riot has been so successful with League of Legends and there's Dota 2 and there's all these you know, MOBA players, but the reality is like, are you really going to pull them away? And this, this article kind of talks about that too. 
is basically, you know, even though there are 80, 90 million registered Steam users, how many of them are polyamorous gamers where they don't just have their handful of games they're playing and they, they're like actively looking for new games and buying new games, right? Yeah. It's interesting. I was thinking about my own behavior recently and like Blizzard has like got me hook, line, and sinker. You love Blizzard, dude. Yeah, like every if whenever there's a new game you're playing, it's either like some scrappy indie game like Ali Ali or something, or it's a Blizzard game. Like that's right. <laughs> that's about your mo. But here's the thing that they've done that's so smart is that they've got their like tentacles in all these different genres. Yeah, and they're genres where like you're probably not going to play more than one. Like, there's no way I'm going to play more than one MMO. There's just not. You know, I don't have the time. I don't right. even have time for one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly uh, <clears throat> and then you know the MOBA I really like Heroes of the Storm I'm not going to go play League of Legends or Smite or any of those games because I'm going to play uh, you know the, I'm going to play Heroes of the Storm because the time I spend playing that game I get better at it and I understand that particular game more and if I were to play like League of Legends or Smite I'd have to start from ground zero again yeah. and I'd have to like have a whole new collection of heroes I'd have to like level up my heroes or whatever um, and the really smart thing they do is the cross promo where, you know, they'll say, Hey, if you get to level 20 in Heroes of the Storm, we'll give you a mountain wow. Or if you get a, uh, mm. if you get to this level in Diablo 3, you get uh, a special skin in Heroes of the Storm. Yeah. And so they kind of keep you, you know, they've got these great offerings where it's like, if you want a dungeon crawler, play Diablo. If you want RTS, play Starcraft. If you want MMO, play Warcraft. If you want MOBA, play Heroes. If you want card game, play Hearthstone. Yeah. And then they just cross-promo the hell out of all those genres, <laughs> and it works ridiculously well. Like, they've got something for everybody, and they're really eager to move you from game to game, depending on whatever's floating your boat at the moment. Right. <clears throat> yeah, that, those are actually another series of hooks. You know, again, it's not just a single hook. Like, one hook could be, you know this universe. You know, you know, when, you're, when you see, a, you know, an orc, you know what that means in the World of Warcraft universe. When you see a goblin, you know, you, like, you know, you have all this knowledge about, you know, not just the larger goblin, there's goblins in all kinds of games, but you know what the goblin in that universe means, right? So you've got all this knowledge set up and ready to go. And then there's also the hooks of like your network. There might be people that you like to play WoW with, and then a lot of them now are over playing Hearthstone or Heroes of the Storm. And so that's like, that's kind of two hooks. Is one is the universe itself, and two is the kind of friend network you've got on there. Right. Multiple and, uh, hooks. When you, you know, when you have all of your friends on Battle.net, it's kind of like this own little social network. And so when you're playing any Blizzard game, you can be chatting with your buddies in any other Blizzard game on Battle.net. And so it's very incestuous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing they mention is uh, they talk about their, uh, their pixel art, which has personality and uh, cute little animations which that's something I'm personally, I'm starting to feel kind of stale on uh, pixel art, but I do think that theirs is uh, particularly delightful. I think that uh, that game would have been a hit regardless of the pixel art or not. I, yeah, I, I, I don't I know agree. for sure, but I kind of feel like they could have had non pixel art and it would have been just as popular. Yeah. I just, uh, I think I want most games to look like uh, spelunky or darkest dungeon. You know, I like hand drawn digital paintings, that are just really well executed personally. But yeah, I, I really don't think that that kind of thing matters. I, I think that, um, yeah, the art could have been pretty bad, honestly, and the game probably would have been still a hit. It's interesting, though, actually, you mentioned Darkest Dungeon. He kind of talks about Darkest Dungeon in this article, too. Yeah. And he says when he looked at it, he knew it was going to be a hit. 
Yeah. And he says, and it's interesting because the hooks of that game aren't as, uh, I would say, like, fantastical, maybe. Yeah. They're more kind of, like, grounded in just really great execution. Right. Because um, he says the design with, like, I guess the, the main hook would be that, you know, you're crawling this dungeon and your adventures are subject to, uh, like, status effects, basically, that are, like, uh, the paranoia and fear of actually crawling through a dungeon filled with, like, nasty crap. Yeah, it's basically, like, the, the psychological toll that dungeon crawling would take on you. Right. That's the hook, and that's almost all it has, aside from, you know, they just executed really well. The art style is gorgeous. Uh, aside from that, I haven't actually, you know, played the game. I couldn't tell you if that's great or not, but it doesn't really matter because their hook is so good. You know, it pulls you in. Like, it would be. That would be horrifying, going into a dungeon and, you know, thinking I might very well die in here and facing off against skeletons and undead rotting flesh dragon things. Like, ah, <laughs> that would be horrifying. It's interesting because they have that one, like, really strong hook and then everything else is basically just in support of that, right? They have this yeah. great uh, art style that looks really good. It's really gritty and gothic. Yeah. Um, and then he mentions how they have, like, this really great trailer uh, with like the narrator is just amazing. So yeah. uh, I think we talked a little bit about this before, but the art style is particularly good because it doesn't just, it's not just well executed. It has a specific style that is very safe in some ways. And it's uh, it's unique. You look at it and it's it's really high contrast. You know, it's like lots of lights, lots of darks. And like most most individual pieces of art that come out of Darkest Dungeon are just this art. Uh, artist Chris Barasa? Um, basically one of those tactics is he will kind of hide things away into shadow. And so one example is like, um, on this promo art on this article, there's a picture of like, uh, looks like a main character, I guess, um, dancing with a bunch of stuff behind him mm-hmm. and, uh, her and, uh, the eyes are completely, um, hidden by shadow. And that's an interesting thing because a lot of artists have trouble with eyes. I actually, I did a study recently of a, of a statue. I posted this on the forum and uh, I, I wanted to do that particular study because the eyes weren't visible. They were hidden underneath um, like a hood. And that's kind of smart sometimes because, you know, like you're able to move faster. Like you don't have to have this, these best looking eyes. And eyes are something that human beings are really excellent at detecting if they look even a little bit off. They're difficult to get right. You know, and this artist dodged them completely by being like, nope, they're in shadow. Who cares? And it doesn't affect the work at all. You know, you don't look at it and you're like really need some eyes you don't you don't you don't feel that <laughs> really need some eyes yeah it's interesting because we've talked about before how the face is something that's hard uh because you know people are kind of accustomed to looking at the face and recognizing the what doesn't look right yeah but i think the eyes are like even more so they are for sure because like, you can have like okay i've got a huge nose and i've got small ears whatever right but like that doesn't really matter. You could put my face and someone else's face, shrink the nose, make the nose bigger. But if you start to like one eye is much higher than the other or like one eye is bigger or, you know, when you're looking at something like this is a common thing, of, you know, you draw something and the eyes are supposed to be looking in a certain direction. That's a hard thing to get right because it's not intuitive. You know, there's not like this obvious place like the, the peoples don't necessarily go in the same place on both spheres from depending on the perspective you're looking at. And like humans are really good at being like, that doesn't look right, you know, <laughs> and therefore it does not work for me. So uh, back to this article. Um, next thing he talks about is analyzing the market uh, for games that are similar to yours. 
And he says he actually enjoys this this phase of development. I, I think it's kind of tough. I hate it. <laughs> market market analysis. Don't panic. Analyzing a market is not boring drudge work. Uh, I I think that's one of the reasons that this uh, this dude has been successful as he has been is because um, there are certain things that you like to do in life and certain things that you don't. And I think that like the you know the Kickstarter campaign showed this. Like we are not really all about promoting and you know and trying to sell ourselves really hard and like analyzing markets and making sense out of it you know like if we're allowed to do what we want to do we're gonna probably lock ourselves in rooms and you know program all day (laughs) game design draw you know like we like the things that we can do ourselves and um i don't know i really like what it can do for you you know like analyzing the market and figuring out this kind of numbers game and growth hacking and all that stuff like it's smart it's good business and like if we're for being honest with ourselves, we are trying to run a business here, so we should we should spend more time and be, be better at this stuff, you know? I find this really interesting, and he kind of highlights this particular passage, and he says, if you're not confident in being able to explain why the hits hit and why the others did not, you shouldn't be confident about your game's chances either. Yeah. <laughs> and basically, what he's saying is that, you know, if you're not able to discern what makes something good or makes something bad, then you have no... <laughs> reason to believe that your idea like you can objectively judge your own idea yeah that's fair it is pretty fair and it's hard and he says you know take a look at uh, a lot of games even bad ones or not bad ones but ones that have sold poorly right and try and come up with explanations for why this game sold well or poorly right it sounds like a really interesting exercise although it does sound like it would take a lot of time it does but like boy does that pay dividends you know it's it's worth it and maybe i don't know maybe we should do that kind of stuff together because when i do it i know what happens is i get first of all i get just overwhelmed by all the data like which of these 1000 games on steam should you look at and you're like it's too many and then like how do you analyze that data you know just gathering the data can be very taxing and once you have it that's that's not even half of the battle analyzing it and coming up with actual takeaways based on that data that's really difficult to do because you have all these things like, you know, correlation is not causation, that kind of thing. Like you might be, you might assume the wrong things by looking at the data, you know, like that, it's a really hard thing to both gather it and then analyze it and then get takeaways from it. It's a, it's difficult. It is. It's extremely difficult. Um, but I think it's something that maybe we should spend some time doing because, you know, especially like in terms of stuff that is in the same genre of things we want to release, um, something else that he goes on to talk about is actually something we just talked about with like the League of Legends and stuff is that like you're not going to steal you're not going to steal players from MOBAs basically right uh, or other like genres where people are just like we were talking about before like I'm a League player I'm a WoW player I'm a HOTS player whatever yeah uh, you're just not but in the indie genres you know where games are played for a low number of hours and players are looking for more you know it's like each individual game isn't going to give someone as much as they want right like wow you know you could spend a lifetime in that game and not do every single thing the game has to offer you know we've kind of seen that a little bit with um binding of isaac because we talked on the uh the post-mortem which i'll put a link to that in the show notes if you haven't seen it um there's a lot of binding of isaac players who found a wizard's lizard but the fact of the matter is is that binding of isaac itself is kind of like one of those games it uh kind of like league of legends or world of warcraft where you know, like Lethal Frag the, and like Northern Lion, they play that game relentlessly. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm really bored with it. I'll go and find a streamer. I swear I'll find this new streamer. Like, oh, cool, new streamer. 
they're playing Isaac. They all play Isaac. They're playing Isaac, 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 you know? And it might be more of a kind of game where it's like, you know, you're not really going to tap into that market because they either play Isaac or nothing. It's not like necessarily that they like roguelikes or that they like Zelda types or anything like that, you know? Um, yeah, maybe. It's tough because definitely haven't seen Northern Lion play a lot of other like top-down Zelda-like games. Um, Frag, for sure, has played... He plays a lot of FTL and games like that, so he's... He's done with FTL. He's done with FTL, but I mean, he played FTL maybe as much, or you know, maybe half as much as a he lot. played he Isaac. Did a whole lot. He did play yeah. a ton, yes. That's, that's fair. Um, so, I think that, too, with streamers, there is, uh, like, you know, okay, let's say it's your job to play video games eight hours a day. Are you really going to play one game all day? Because you'll probably bore yourself to death eventually, right? So it is more likely... And plus, there's an element of, like, they want to keep their audience fresh and entertained. They want to try new things to, like, introduce the audience to new things and... Um, you know, just just keep things interesting. Right, yeah. So they might be more willing to try a new game, especially if it is in a genre that they've already, you know, it's already established that they like it a lot. So there's still a but chance. There is, but it, you make a good point about something like Isaac where, uh, like, Wizards, Lizard and, and stuff, like, kind of competes directly with that, and it kind of sucks up a lot of time because of its really high replayability value. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not like Portal, you know? <laughs> Nobody, unless you're speed running or, or something like that, you don't really play Portal all day, probably. You know, because because you, you can beat that game in like three hours, right? Like you're not gonna make that the only game that you stream, right? Yeah. Until you speed run the butts off of it, and then maybe <laughs> the butts, the butts. So, uh, I think the next major section here is promotion. Ugh, it's what we're worst at. <laughs> it's got like reading these articles is somewhat daunting because. While they're presenting things in like a nice, like, oh, here's all you have to do. Uh, all you have to do is a lot of things really well. <laughs> I, okay, there's also a lot of things that are just not uh, drilled into enough as well. We were talking earlier about how like an artist will not even know what they're doing necessarily and skip a lot of steps, you know, because there's, and, and there's a lot of that here where it's like, yo, just analyze your hooks. Like, how do you really measure how compelling your hook is because one thing that I find really hooky might make an audience shrug, you know? Right. And a lot of that's going to be subjective and a lot of it's just going to be kind of impossible to measure. I mean, I guess you could always test it out. Uh, that's something else like we did with our Kickstarter. We sent it out to a couple of people and like, um, there should have been more negativity probably. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, come on, come on guys. Needs more hook or needs more, uh, needs more oomph, more impact, that kind of a thing. Um, I guess that is the way to test it is you just, you give it to people. And that, he makes this point actually, don't listen to what they say, listen to what they do, you know? So if everybody's telling you like, wow, your game's great. It looks great. But they just walk on. They don't actually spend time with it and play it and whatnot. Like that might be a way to measure like, okay, so the people aren't being honest or maybe they're just, you know, they're being polite and they don't really care. Cause like they haven't, they didn't stick around and play or whatnot. In some ways, our first Kickstarter actually kind of got that a little more right because we launched Kickstarter at CAX, California extreme where yeah. we were doing a live demo of the game and we were actually able to watch people play and see where they got stuck and see where they're having fun and see, you know, what brought people back and what surprised them and stuff like that. And maybe that had some kind of, uh, you know, intangible effect on us. Or not intangible, but like we didn't even realize how much of effect that had on the direction we took the game. Yeah, it definitely uh, beat some stuff into us, which was like, you know, the things that are obvious to you are not obvious to other gamers. And like there's way too many steps and people want to get to the fun faster. 
And uh, those are takeaways that like, I think sometimes there are things that you're kind of aware of in the back of your mind, but you're hoping won't be a problem, you know? And like, that makes me think about the Kickstarter where like, you know, somewhere in the back of our minds, we knew that it was not what it needed to be and that we hadn't done enough legwork and that kind of stuff. And when you get out into the real world and you've got other people kind of like confirming this information to you or giving you new information, you know, it's you learn it in a different way. You learn it in a more real way where you're act, like, it actually changes your behavior instead of just being this, you know, knowledge you're not acting on just like fermenting the back of your mind, you know, uh, it's really easy to lie to yourself. And yeah. Even without really realizing it. Yes. Uh, and again, like you said, <laughs> it's like sweeping things under the rug, you know, things that in a games, it's especially insidious because when you play a game enough, even just a prototype, like you're intimate with all of its flaws and its quirks and stuff, and you start to gloss over the things that someone else would immediately be like, "What is this?" Yeah, and you're like, "No, no, no, it's it's fine because like all you have to do is this other thing," and it's like, "Well, that doesn't make any sense," and you're like, "Well, I've just been doing it for months." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, let's just wrap up this kind of article analysis. You can go read it. Obviously, there's a lot of great for there, but I kind of like the way that he kind of ends this with like these. Things that, uh, he said, most ideas are a dime a dozen, um, but if you can come up with an idea that has great hooks, has a viable market, will be easy to promote, it's something you're excited to make, and it's something that you have the skills and resources to make, then you have a pretty good shot at making a good uh, piece of content. And I think those uh, last two things are, like, pretty important, right? It's kind of somewhat obvious that, like, okay, it has to look pretty good. Um, there has to be people that want to buy it. Um, and you know, the more, the easier it is to promote, the better, you know, so something that's just kind of intrinsically hooky, right? Like, you know, Oh, roguelike DDR or, you know, psychological dungeon thriller, uh, is good. Um, but then like something you're excited to make, you know, I think that that's sometimes hard because there's a lot of things that you think you're excited to make. Yeah. Uh, and then you get, you know, about. 10 steps into it and you're like you're losing momentum and that's hard i mean it's hard to understand which ideas you're actually excited about and not superficially excited about there's an element too of like you you don't even know where the finish line is and if you don't know where the finish line is then you need to be honest that you can't possibly be excited about the finish line because you don't you don't know where it is you know right um that's a big one because you might have a concept like this has happened to us dozens of times where you're like, man, I really want to make a game about, you know, smashing cities or something. And you're like, there's this core of it that you're just fascinated by and you really want to work on it. And so you start to prototype, but you don't know where the finish line is. You're hoping that it'll like, you'll plant the seed and it'll grow and it'll be this wonderful flower or whatever. But then you get to a certain point where you start to like, you start to get an inkling of where the finish line might be. And you realize that that's somewhere where you don't want to go. You know, and so the more unknowns there are in a game design, the more that like, uh, does it have great hooks? Does it have a viable market? Will it be easy to promote? Um, and the other, all, all these things he mentions here, you don't know. If the more unknowns there are in your project, the more you just don't know those things. And so the answer is kind of no, right? Like it won't be easy to promote because I, I don't know for sure where it will end up. Right. It's yeah, tough, that's man. tough. It is. And like, you know, if you're not excited about designing it to the end then you know that's a bad sign yeah 
Uh, this is a big one too. It's something that you have the skills and resources to make. And this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, where it's even difficult to answer these questions. Like, how do you even determine that you have the skills and resources to make something? Because if you're going to be really pessimistic, you can say, I don't. I've never made something exactly like this before, and therefore I just don't have the skills and resources. Or you could be overly optimistic and say, I believe in myself. I can do it. Other people have done it. I think I can do it too, right? But you need more than that. You need something more tangible, you know, like, and there are things that you can do. You can prototype. You can say, you know, I didn't make a whole game like that, but I prototyped one, you know, and that's like a step closer. That's like doing a sketch before you move to a painting or something, you know, it it lets you, it gives you like a free range to practice. That's beneficial. Yeah. I think repeating what you've done before is a big one there. It's like, if you're being honest with yourself is if it's something that you have the skills and resources to make, that's evidenced by the fact that you have done it before. And if right. not, you can't guarantee that. No, and yeah, you got to have uh, a pretty good reason for believing that you can. Yeah. Um, one thing that uh, you touched on this briefly, uh, one thing that is kind of beaten into our brains as uh, indie developers is that ideas are worthless, right? Ideas are worthless. Ideas are worthless. We all know it. Execution is everything, blah, 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 right? But that's never really been completely true to me, you know, it's like it's it's basically true. If you say like, "Oh, I've got a great concept," it's basically you know, Metroid in the jungle or something like. Okay, it's fine, right? The idea, the ideas aren't necessarily always worthless, because like he's saying, if if it you know meets this Venn diagram where it has great hooks and a viable market and easy to promote, like sometimes you just hear an idea. Someone will tell you like their their little one liner for their game. Like when I first heard Darkest, Darkest Dungeon, honestly. You know, it's a psychological game about dungeon crawling, right? You hear that and you're like, okay, that's an idea that has value, you know? And right. the problem is that a lot of people think they've got that. They have an idea and they're like, they're so convinced that it's really good, but they haven't, you know, tested it. They, they, they haven't made sure that it checks all of these boxes. It, it might just check one. And the one might be that it's something that you're excited to make. That might be it. I think that some of the hard part, though, is the is in the execution is capturing that idea. Yeah. You know, like the idea itself, like you said, does have merit, but if it's not executed well, it's worthless. Yeah. Like Darkest Dungeon could have been, you know, oh, you know, when you're, uh, when your character is about to die, he gets a frowny face and that's it. There's like no game mechanic element to it. You know, there's no like, oh, you're weaker. You need to go back to town. You need to rejuvenate with alcohol and, uh, you know, good food or anything like that. Like there needs to be more meat on the bone kind of thing. Right. It's like uh, the uh, the idea. I think, like you said, has merit, but without being designed well and executed well, then it it can't stand on its own. Right. So ideas like ideas are kind of worthless by themselves, but if they come with an understanding of the market and your own capabilities, and uh, and you yourself are excited about it, then then it does start to have value at that point because it gives you a direction to go. You know, in this overwhelming place where you're like, you can make any game you want. What are you going to make? And you're like, like, that's our problem sometimes. You know, like earlier this year, we were prototyping tactics games and several different types of action games like Project Skirmish and whatnot. And we always kind of had AWL2 bouncing the back of our minds. And, you know, there's only eight hours in the day. Like, what are you going to ship? You know, what are you going to work on? That's such a hard question to answer sometimes. It is, yeah. Um, I think... I don't know how we always get to these points, but one of the big mistakes we made with AWL2 was that we kind of tried to start designing it from scratch. Yeah. Instead of just taking what we had already made and, and new worked and making it even better. Yeah. It was just kind of 
we didn't realize how long our runway was and how long these things would take. And that's, um, I mean, we knew, eh, not really. Yeah, we just, we didn't know enough for sure. And what we should have done is we should have just basically knew, we should have known where the finish line was and moved towards it as fast as we possibly could, basically. And we didn't do that. We, we, t- we spent a lot of time, you know, in research and development and coming up with things. And like, yeah, we, we should have just been like a wizard's lizard one, but much better. Right. right like that should have been the goal and that that's nice concise goal because you can picture the game like i was lizard one is done there's no element of like it only exists in your mind it only exists in a design document it could be any kind of game in the world no it's a done finished game you can go play it from start to finish you know everything that's in there and you can imagine how everything could just be better you know so it's like you've got your starting point you've got your finish line it's just the middle parts that need kind of refining and that would have been a at least a more concise way to develop it right yeah Anyways, um, I bet you have an art tip for us this week. Um, I do have an art tip, yes. Uh, let's see, what is it? So, this one, uh, we're starting to get near the end of my list, but I keep adding new stuff to it. So, I don't know, uh, this might go on forever, or I might get to the point where <laughs> at some point I do want to get back to like some recursion, because I think that that's a, re- a really important theme when you're trying to improve anything, you know? And that, again, with the game development, um, that's something we should have been doing. We should have been prototyping this whole time. Even like, uh, you know, take a half day on Friday and just to prototype in some new idea just to like just to practice game design practice development practice shipping something even small you know um so composition this is uh, i think this is number tip number nine but uh basically you're drawing every day you're practicing stuff you're working on your strengths and your weaknesses you're filling sketchbooks you've got all this stuff and like the hope is that it's something that you're doing every day and now you can start to think about composition and uh, an important part of this is that you've got this rhythm going. And um, what that means is, like, because you're drawing every day, you can try different things. You can try to see which uh, which kind of compositions work for you and which don't. And there's lots of tools uh, at your disposal. There are things like mood lines. I'm really into mood lines. Uh, because the way they work, it basically is like, if I show you a horizontal line, you'll probably find it to be pretty relaxing. It'll make you think of the beach or looking at, you know, a mountain range in the distance you know, it's very calming, right? Mm-hmm. But if I show you jagged lines that are very sharp, um, almost like, uh, what is it, Argyle? What's that pattern called? It would make you think of like monster teeth. You know, it'd make you think of like an earthquake. It would make you, it, it makes you nervous, you know? Hmm. And let's say you have like a, a straight vertical line. That's all that you have. It might make you feel divided, like the left side and the right side. It might make you feel stable, like you're standing straight and solid and you're tall and strong, right? But if I tilt that line, it might make you think of the leaning tower of uh, Pisa and like you're, it makes you uncomfortable. It makes you feel like you're about to fall. It makes you feel off balance, right? Mm. And just with these simple lines, like a couple of strokes, you can convey an emotion. And if it works on that level with no detail and no you know, extra thought put into it, it will work on the larger level as well. And it's that kind of thing that I'm talking about with composition. Um, one way to think about it is like when you're drawing, how would a film director shoot this shot? Uh, would you go top down to make everything feel small like ants? Would you want things to tower above you? Like, you know, if a 12 foot tall dude walked up to you and was like, give me your money, you'd feel very vulnerable. You know, you feel very threatened. Is that the way you want to shoot this thing? Um, one common way to do portraits is eye level because a common thing with a portrait, uh, is you want to kind of relate to the subject, you know? Like, here's this person. This person existed, this person lived, and, like, a lot of times uh, portraits are placed at eye level, and it, it puts you, it puts the audience, like, 
on an even level with the subject. Right. Um, there's some really great uh, resources to look at this kind of stuff. Um, I read a book called Framed Inc., which I cannot possibly recommend enough. It is uh, all about sequential so- storytelling, stuff like uh, thumbnails, storyboard, uh, and um, basically like compositional shots for anything from comics to movies. Uh, and then there's also a series of videos uh, called Every Frame a Painting, which, uh, did you, are you the one who sent me that? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I started off with Chuck Jones, which is a, an amazing watch. Um, I think that's Chuck Jones. But basically, I went through and watched every single one of them. And uh, man, what, <laughs> what, what insightful, great stuff. It's just fantastic. And it really gives you... Um, a key like a clue into how to frame stuff you know how to how to shoot something how to compose uh, a drawing or or a video game you know yeah that's really helpful stuff um and it's stuff that like you as a consumer of this kind of stuff like if you don't really think about it you wouldn't really notice right um but actually you know it kind of all ties back into game development right because you know trailers or uh kind of still shots screenshots like i think that all of these things can be applied to you know the promotional materials that you put out like how do you want to present your game how do you want people to feel when they see this promo art yeah um that kind of stuff so i don't know it's a deep ocean of <laughs> creative work uh and there's all these subtleties but yeah uh it's all really interesting stuff and uh, kind of what I was saying earlier is like, you know, if you're drawing every day, the nice thing is that you can compare your compositions. So like, let's say you really wanted to do a drawing of like, you're like, you know, I, I love snakes. I want to draw a snake wrapped around a tree branch kind of coming off the tree, right? Uh, start to thumbnail it, you know, make these tiny little drawings, like one inch by two inch or something. And, uh, you know, just start with however, and then change it, like change your perspective, look at it from top down, look at it from bottom up, look at it eye level, uh, you know, look at uh, super exaggerated shots. Look at like just make a dozen different thumbnails, and you'll start to understand which ones make you feel certain ways, and that'll give you more information about the composition and which one you like the most, and which one you want to spend time on. You know, finishing and detailing and all that. Yeah, really useful stuff. That's good. That's good stuff. That's right. So uh, I also have a game dev tip. Ooh, yeah. Tip of the game dev to you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. Uh, this is one I think that you know we've probably touched on just in the course of talking about stuff, but uh, premature optimization mm. uh, is the root of all evil. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think is how the saying goes. Yeah. Um, but you know, to kind of put that in more kind of concrete details, uh, what it's talking about really is like not putting the uh, the cart before the horse, basically, when it comes to optimization. Right. Um, optimization, I think, is something that we talked about as being like a polish step. Yeah. And I think it's really easy, uh, especially as a programmer, to get caught up in the details of like, oh, this is not the best way to write a for loop or, you know, this brute force algorithm like isn't going to perform very well. And I find myself doing this like all the time. Yeah. I'm sitting down to write some code and I'm writing an algorithm of some kind. I'm like, oh, I should not be iterating all over these things like every <laughs> single frame. Yeah. And in some senses, you're, you know, I'm correct, right? Yes, that is not the most efficient way to do it. But if that code doesn't exist in, you know, what we call a hotspot, which is, you know, uh, a section of the code is going to get run over and over again, uh, you know, like many times in the same frame or something, then it probably doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and so 
optimization is obviously good, but you shouldn't optimize until you've measured. Right. And so that's something else, right, is that to always be measuring what you're working on. Um, running the profilers, uh, Unity has a profiler, Chrome has a profiler. Um, I try to get in the habit of just looking at it every so often, especially if I'm in there making like major changes, uh, just to kind of see how things are affecting uh, the work. Like when I was doing a lighting work in Unity, you know, um, a lot of times I would just run the game with the profiling up and just take a look at what was happening. And especially with Unity, I'm not as uh, good with the profiling tools as I am with HTML5, but you can still kind of get an idea of, you know, what the bottlenecks are going to be. Make it work, make it pretty, make it fast. Yes, make it work, make it pretty, make it fast. And the key there, make it fast is last. That's right. Yeah, there was uh, on our forum recently, uh, I really love these threads where somebody will post like their game or their project and, you know, especially when they want feedback and stuff because that's kind of fun. And uh, basically there was somebody who was spending a lot of time trying to kind of finagle the, the animations to work, you know, before the game was was done. Or, and I think they were at the stage where they didn't necessarily know uh, what the game was going to be even, you know, and that, that could totally be a complete waste of time. You know, because you could take the game design, the implementation to a point where you're like, oh, I just realized I actually don't need these animations. And then like what, you know, you've learned and you practiced and that's that's great, but like it didn't necessarily push you forward uh, shipping the game faster or whatnot. Yeah, that's uh, one of the hardest things to do as a creative person is understand what needs to be worked on next. Yes. Yeah, and like what's the one thing I could do right now? And there's this eternal struggle between what you want to do what you need to do uh, and, you know, getting those things to sync up isn't always (laughs) super easy. Yeah. It's kind of like struggling with your own desires, you know, because like whatever's itchiest to you is almost certainly not the thing that needs to be done next. (laughs) We do this all the time, you know, like we'll be working on like, oh man, we got this really great tile set and like it's it's flexible and it looks great. And then we realize like, oh crap, we're going (laughs) to, we're going to do it a completely different way. (laughs) <laughs> but we had all these pretty graphics and we had this really robust system and we're like, you know, we, we got better in the process. We're better developers now and we learned about the art and yada, yada, yada. But did it, did it ship, did it help us ship a game faster? And the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all about like priorities and whatnot. But it's like when, it, I think it, part of it too is realizing which steps are the optimization steps. And when you can realize that, it helps you be like, that sounds like fun, that needs to be done someday, but that is an optimization step and we are not there yet. Right, yeah. Yeah, just understanding what's important and what isn't is a skill of its own. It is, yeah. And like the most effective people, you know, these prolific developers who are cranking out games or people who just, you know, they seem to be able to learn faster, just move faster than you. They they may not even work harder than you or longer than you. They probably just work on the most effective things. Like they're much better at prioritizing. It's probably right. what it is. Probably. That's a good tip. That's also one of those tips that applies to your whole life, you know? That's true, yeah. Optimizing too early. Yeah, and it's not even like optimizing in the, you know, performance sense. Right. It could just be anything, right? Like, basically, don't spend time on stuff that doesn't matter yet. It is basically what what it boils down to. Yeah, that's true. And, and it could uh, be, you know, anything. It's, it's kind of like, a, I think it also works for, like, project management, too, you know? I also have, like, these uh, these times where, like, I want to go in and I want to just, like, organize tickets, yeah, <laughs> like that's premature optimization. It's like, does that is that really what I should be doing with my time? No. Yeah, I I do that a lot. Probably, you know, I'd be embarrassed to admit how much. 
Uh, it's a common thing. I'll be like, you know, we're watching TV at night because I'm going to wind down for the evening and I'll just open up a sauna and start to just move crap around and like, am I really doing any good? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. But, you know, it's not always bad, right? Like if you're just doing it while you're watching TV and you wouldn't really be doing anything productive anyway, then like why the hell not? Yeah. I think that the danger in that stuff is when you start to think that you're actually making progress. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I'm going to spend, like, it's the beginning of the work day. Okay, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to organize my desk because right. that's what I need to do to get started to work. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then I'm going to I'm gonna get all my tickets in order and I'm going to update all of my dependencies, you know, and I'm going to do all these, like, little kind of menial tasks that feel like work that aren't actually pushing forward on whatever it is you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I get that same thing, you know, it's like, okay, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to update homebrew and make sure that my node js is not out of date because that you know minor version bump is going to make all the difference today yeah (laughs) or something uh it's tough man it is tough we could spend a lot of time on uh, the things we talked about today like analyzing markets verifying that the game design we have is the right one to commit to um, making sure that the thing that we're working on is prioritized correctly like the yes this is the very next thing that needs to be done towards mar- like like on the march towards shipping this game like that is the next thing in the path and that's hard to determine it is um i'm sure that a lot of people are kind of wondering what's next for awl2 because you know we did take down the kickstarter and uh matt will link that post in the show notes probably yep. um yep. i think that we are you know we're going to keep working on the game in some respect because we're still really interested in making it yeah. Um, and how that ends up happening, you know, we're deciding right now. But we actually have a little bit of renewed energy for this project. Um, I think it's interesting when you come up against something that's, you know, kind of a misstep or a failure is there's kind of two ways to react to it. One is that you can let it defeat you and you can say, you know, this is just terrible and I really screwed up and it's never going to work and <laughs> I'm done. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then the other way to do it is you could say, you know, all right, well, we messed up, but we learned something and now we're going to move forward in, in a way that's better and, you know, hopefully uh, make more progress. And so I think that's kind of the mode that we're in. It seems like, you know, when the Kickstarter was going on, we were both not in a super great uh, positivity space. Right. <laughs> um, but I think we've both kind of climbed out of that and we're much more renewed and invigorated to march forward on you know the various ldg projects yeah i am i'm really amped up about a wizard lizard 2 now at this moment i think with like a renewed purpose in the design you know where it's more of a slant of a wizard's lizard one minus the flaws plus a few awesome things we wanted to put in that's a game i want to play you know like the reason i don't play a wizard lizard every day is not just because i've already you know kind of done that for a couple of years but also because like it's got these flaws and there's just things i want to fix but like for what we have in mind for the sequel, I want to play that and I'm really excited to make it. I almost feel like uh, the failure could be a good thing because it's kind of given us this like, almost like this monkey on your back that you want to like <laughs> get rid of, right? Or like you want yeah. to prove like now that there's been like a kind of a public, like, hey, this isn't that great. Public now flood. it's like, well, we have to do better. Now we have to show ourselves and other people that, you know, that wasn't just it was just a setback yeah it wasn't it's, the nail in the coffin it's just rough man like we basically just uh should not have done the kickstarter because it like kind of hurt the the 
the prospect that like, hey, here's a here's a game that people like, here's a game people are interested in, and like that kind of puts a ding in that, you know. Not to dwell on the negativity or anything, but it, on the on the upside, it does have this kind of like you know renewed interest in us to to make up for that, right? Right. Um, I want to say too a couple things. I don't want to dwell on negativity, uh, like I was saying, but like we are joining good company. It's like <laughs> most most Kickstarter campaigns fail, and like we actually had a lot of uh, developers reach out to us, and like it's you know, you think that you're like, oh crap, our project is garbage and we're garbage, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's a big ocean. There's a lot of projects that are, you know, better than ours, but still failed. And there's a lot of projects that are were like way worse and, and failed or succeeded. You know, like it's, there's a lot going on there. We are joining the company of, um, so Cogs developers, a guy who worked on uh, Cogs, which is actually a game that I played on iOS. I thought it was a really smart game. It was like this kind of 3D puzzle. It's almost like, you know, these sliding puzzles um, that you see in like, you know, retail stores and whatnot, where it's like a 2D thing, and it's like, it's basically just um, an image, and then it's got these, it's divided up into a matrix, and you slide these little squares around to, like, reform the image. It's kind of like that, but with cool steampunky 3D objects. So it'll be like, you, you you know, you move a tile here, and on the back, it affects something back there. Really cool, and it won a bunch of awards, and there was a Kickstarter uh, for the next game, Extra Solar, which, um, which failed, and now this dude works full-time at Google. And, you know... I don't lose respect for that developer. I'm still impressed with COGS. I'm still impressed with entrepreneurship and like Google's an amazing place to work. So like across the board, I just, I think that that's just a, you know, a lot of success and a lot of learnings and a lot of interesting takeaways. Um, another one is the uh, Mutant League football. Did you play that when you were growing up? Oh, I love that game. Isn't that great? And like when I was growing up, I, I didn't really play a lot of sports games. Uh, you know, I, I played sports. I've never really watched them. I played some of the classics like, you know, uh, Blades of Steel and Double uh, double Dribble and even like NFL Blitz and stuff like that. But I think a lot of uh, people who grew up around the time that we did you know, 80s and 90s and whatnot, they really liked Mutant League football because it was kind of different. It was, like, bloody and gory and spikes and, like, you know, break the rules and stuff. And uh, I saw that on Kickstarter, and that was one of these things where it was it was about where we were, where, where it was like, you know, you needed... <laughs> you were pretty far off. You were, like, an order of magnitude away. <laughs> like, you weren't even really close to where you needed to be. And, um, I, again, I don't lose respect for that developer. You know, I just... I know that it's kind of par for the course. Like, it just happens. And, uh, and so, anyway, we... We join good company. You know, it happens to, to the best of people. And Kickstarter, you know, especially, and just, you know, funding games in general is like this kind of moving target. You know, the yeah. industry moves so fast and what worked last year isn't as effective this year and the quality bar just keeps going up and up and up for, you know, projects uh, that are trying to be funded, for projects that are trying to be greenlit, for games that just want to find an audience whatsoever. Right, Exactly. So that's good stuff. Um, something else we want to mention is uh, someone asked about an Amazon wish list. So we do have one. Not going to you know plug that too much, but it does exist. And uh, there's some things there that if, uh, if you're interested, uh, we could use. And uh, we've actually had um, you know, a lot of luck with that before. Thank you, Joe, uh, for people helping us out with you know, various things that we could use. And then uh, also something we're considering uh, is going the crowdfunding route again, although this one on a much smaller and more concise scale. This would be, we're investigating it. We're not for sure doing this, but we're thinking about going to Patreon, which if you're not familiar about Patreon, it is basically a, like a recurring Kickstarter. So rather than like, yeah, I'll give you guys 10 bucks this one month or, you know, I'll give, you know, I'll commission a painting for a hundred bucks or whatever. It would be more like, yeah, I'll give you guys a buck a month for the, for the podcast. It would be specific to Lost Cast, right? Or it's like, yeah, I'll give you five bucks a month or whatever. 
And uh, we basically just want to kind of put our feelers out. You know, like we'll put a survey out there. Um, if it if that's something that you would be interested in, you know, you back us and you get some rewards uh, per month, then uh, take the survey. Because we were thinking, we were like, you know, surveys don't really hold a lot of water. You know, somebody might take a survey and then, you know, say one thing and do something else. Or like, you know, maybe it's incomplete or the survey's not that great or whatever. But like, if you're not going to take the survey, you're almost certainly not going to sign up for Patreon and support us. So it's like, <laughs> it at least has that. Like the amount of responses the survey gets would be, you know, about the same or less when it comes to actually resulting in Patreon backers. Um, right. But that's something we're thinking about. And if that is something that if you would be willing to support the podcast, um, do take the survey and let us know because um, that would be good information for us to have. Indeed. It's, you know, we've always kind of struggled trying to figure out how to you know, keep up our development efforts, you know, and it almost right. seems like the audiences are separate sometimes, right? The, they are. They really are. The last survey you did actually kind of showed that a lot of people that listen to the podcast don't necessarily like to play our games or whatever. Yeah. And uh, so it's kind of like, a you know, trying to convert developers to like a gaming Kickstarter is difficult, but maybe we'll have more luck with trying to convert people to a, you know, development focused patreon and to be clear the podcast would not go like you know uh we were not gonna we wouldn't take it down we wouldn't stop doing it or we wouldn't make it private i guess is a common thing podcasters do the way patreon was invented actually it was made with the mindset of like i'm making free content uh, sequential free content and basically it's almost like a tip jar you know it's like someone playing music on the street and you know they do make money like people do put money in the tip jar and it's that same kind of a thing Right. It would be more like, you know, helping us make the podcast better or do more of it or do more developer focused things, uh, yeah. you know, depending on how it goes. So if, yeah, if nothing else, it would help pay for the server costs of hosting, you know, big MP3 files and whatnot every month. Right. So like there, there is always that. And then like some people make uh, actually uh, laser time. So if you're not familiar with, uh, with Patreon, I'll put a link to, um, laser time who they are friends of ours. Um, VG empire is another podcast that we plug a lot. And, uh, VG empire is a lot of the same people, uh, including Brett, who I think I mentioned earlier in this podcast, but, uh, yeah, a lot of the same friends that come from Games Radar, and uh, they all know each other. And Laser Time went to Patreon, and so you can look at that to kind of get an idea for what we have in mind. And Laser Time's been doing really well, so uh, check out their Patreon to see the kind of thing that we uh, were thinking about doing. And uh, if it interests you, then take the survey, and uh, we'll determine what to do next. Sounds good. Yeah. I think that's all we have this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, as always, join us in the forum, forum.lostigagames.com. We are going to play you out with Alligators by Joshua Morse. Ship it.
that's my little my little refrigerator story. <laughs> Most fascinating story of all time. <laughs> I think I fell asleep 